already. We are fed. We are strengthened through the worship of God. And, um, and this is a part of that worship because we continue to hear and then to respond and to hear and to respond. We're coming, returning back to Acts chapter 1 after a little, uh, little time in Revelation. And, um, and we come back to these, these days of waiting and of preparation between the ascension of Jesus on the 40th day and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, several weeks from now, on the day of Pentecost, because uh, several weeks, because others will be preaching in the next two weeks. Um, so we've seen that there's this gathering of about 120 disciples in an upper room, and that they're all with one accord, continually devoting themselves to prayer. And they're praying for the kingdom to come. Um, and they know Jesus promised it's coming, but just because Jesus promised it doesn't mean we don't pray for it, does it? God uses I, I, even the prayers of the disciples in those time, in that time to be accomplishing his purposes for his kingdom. So it's while the disciples are praying that, that the Spirit is moving and working before he's been poured out, and Peter sees the necessity of bringing the number of the apostles back to 12, which is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So Jesus chose 12 disciples as a sign that this kingdom community he's about to create, he's about to create, it's a new creation, right? Jesus is the beginning of the new creation in his resurrection, and he's about to create now the, the new creation in a new community, a kingdom community. And that's going to be the fulfillment of God's promises to the Old Covenant, 12 tribes of Israel. So we have 12 disciples. Judas Iscariot has fallen away. He's defected. And they need someone to take his place. Now, should that cause us any doubt? Should it be like, well, wait a minute, what happened? Something went wrong. Jesus prayed all night long before he picked 12 disciples. And one of them was to use our language today, a really bad apple, right? He, 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 he's defected. He's become the betrayer of Jesus. How has it happened? Now, and, and again, we, we can be like, oh, well, it all worked out, right? We needed someone to be the betrayer. And that's, that's a really cavalier attitude we really shouldn't have, right? It's a mystery how Judas could have been chosen as one of the disciples and go along and do what he did and exist for three years doing what he did. It's, 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 it's a mystery. And so as the disciples, you're short one now. There's 11 of you. And that number 11 is kind of a constant reminder because they were called the 12, you know, the 12, the 12. That, that number is a constant reminder that something went bad, right? Even though it brings ultimate good. The question is, did this happen outside of God's providential control? So here we are as disciples, we're saying, okay, no, we need to add another one. Well, what does that tell you? Why are, why are we missing one in the first place? Is this us saying, let's react to, to this with a plan B? The answer is we're about to see is, is we know the answer is no. But see, that's, that's not sufficient, is it? The answer isn't just No. The answer is, in your handout, you know the blank, but I just put it there for you to have fun writing it if you want. The answer is, to the contrary. Okay. 
to the contrary. And we'll see how that is in verses in our passage this morning. So verses 15 to 17, listen to what, what happens here. And in those days, in those days of praying and waiting and looking for the arrival of the kingdom, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers, a crowd of about 120 persons was there together, and he said, men, brothers, uh, maybe we'll talk about that sometime, maybe we won't, but in the Greek it says, men, brothers. Most translations simply say brothers, and, and I think that's unfortunate here. Um, but men, brothers, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. Well, there's an end to all our doubts, right? Which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. So like Peter's just spelling it all out. Yeah, I know what happened. He became a guide. He was counted among us. He received his share in this ministry. Then he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. But that, that doesn't shake Peter's faith. Because notice the care with which he chooses his words and the simple conviction of his words. It's just beautiful. It was necessary. This isn't just a matter of God reacting. It's not just a matter of God's just kind of taking into account what he foresees is going to happen, and then he runs with it. No, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold. He just piles up these words. By the mouth of David concerning Judas. Did you know Judas was in Psalms? So the betrayal... And this defection of Judas and his ultimate fate, as evil and as terrible as it was. And I've been thinking, when we, when we went through the Gospel of John, I remember thinking about Judas and just like, wow, what? And, and I'm, I've been doing the same thing here this week, and I hope you'll do it now. As evil as that was, it falls ultimately and mysteriously in a way that we cannot grasp or comprehend in your handout under the sovereign decree and plan of our God. And we know that all things, all things fall under his sovereign decree and plan, including when a sparrow falls to the ground, including the number of hairs on your head currently. But because the defection of Judas, now, you, you can't go to the Old Testament and find the number of hairs on your head at this moment foretold through the mouth of David, right? But, Because this event, this defection of Judas, is so closely associated with our redemption, it just happens to be foretold by the scripture. Notice how Paul, Peter, equates that which is written. Scripture is, the the word for scripture is graphe, which is where we get our word for, uh, well, it's at least related to our words for graffiti or graphics or things like that. And something that's inscribed or written. So scripture, when you think of scripture, think of that which is written. That which is written. And Peter equates that which is written with the very word of God given by the Holy Spirit. That's what he does here. He says it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. 
Notice he doesn't say it was necessary that, the wor- that God's word be fulfilled, that God's word which was in scripture be fulfilled. He says it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. In, in the betrayal, defection, and ultimate fate of Judas, what I, what I really want us to see is just how Peter's view of Scripture is the highest it can possibly be. It couldn't be higher. It's like this. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. I know I didn't say anything really profound, but actually it is. <laughs> but we, we hear it, we know it, we're good conservative Christians, we believe it, right? And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but I, I just want us to, to appreciate that fact and that reality. The scripture, therefore, if when Scripture speaks, God speaks, Scripture carries the full weight of divine authority. And that was convicting to me as I think about the fact that each week I spend all week preparing a sermon. And, and those of you who have done that, that's a, that's a, that should cause some fear and trembling. Because this is the word of God. What do I mean by that? I mean it's the word of God. It carries the full weight of divine truthfulness. So it's Peter, who's talking here in Acts, who later writes these words. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now we have to be careful again. Because Peter's point is not that Well, you open your Old Testament and you look around for prophecies. And wherever you find a prophecy, that's that's the word of God. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily the rest of it, but wherever you find prophecies. Peter's assumption here is that the entirety of Scripture is prophetic. Okay? So... The Old Testament scriptures are often summed up with this phrase, Moses and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. Now, Moses, we know, was a prophet par excellence. He just gets, he just gets singled out because he was the first and, and kind of greatest, as it were, before John the Baptist. So we've got Moses and the prophets. Now, in your Bibles, in our English canon, we divide up the Old Testament like there's Moses or the law, and then we have our books of history, which is kind of really unfortunate given our schooling today with text, history textbooks. Um, but the Jews, they referred to the books of history as the prophets. They were the former prophets. Then you had the latter prophets. And all, the whole entire Old Testament, including Psalms and Proverbs and First Kings and Second Kings and Judges and Ruth and, of course, all the prophets, all that was summed up as the prophets. So the scriptures don't just include words of prophets. You don't just open them up and look for prophetic uh, writings. You open them up and you, you get prophetic. That's what it is. And they're always written under prophetic inspiration. They're written, edited, and compiled under prophetic inspiration, always with a prophetic purpose. Therefore, the entirety of scripture to every last jot and tittle is Jesus puts it, is the very word of God. And this is something that is foundational for us. It's why we have upon scripture alone on the back wall. It's precisely that that is so often being abandoned today in different ways. 
may we always stay faithful to that, not simply as a doctrine that we have in our heads, but that we live it out. What does that mean? I think it should cause us to approach the scriptures with humility and with obedience and even with a certain fear and trembling when we come to hear it preached. It should also cause us to approach the scriptures with full confidence and expectation and faith. So there's like the sobering warning part and then there's the encouraging part. That's what this is. That's what we get to hear each week, read and preached. So it was necessary, Peter says, that the scripture be fulfilled in the betrayal and defection and ultimate fate of Judas. When we hear the word fulfilled, and we know this by now, I think, hopefully, we hear the word fulfilled, what do we think of oftentimes? Not, not anymore, hopefully, but we think of prediction. Like making predictions that come true. That's true as far as it goes. Um, but instead of fulfilled, we could also translate filled up. It was necessary that the scripture be filled up. And so in the end, this is really important, the entirety of the Old Testament, everything that you read in the Old Testament, is in one way or another fulfilled or filled up in Jesus. So you can read a passage in Isaiah that talks about the virgin conceiving, or in Micah that talks about uh, Bethlehem and Ephratah, and, and, and that's a prophecy. You can also read the whole book of Judges and know that the book of Judges is filled up in Jesus. One way or another. It's all prophetic. The question then is, how is that scripture? Here's the question, and I'm inviting you to think about it because this is a head-scratcher at first for us today. How is the scripture which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas filled up in who? In Jesus. In some sense, Judas was foretold, but nothing is filled up in Judas. It's filled up in Jesus. That's how we got to read this. That's how we got to work. That's how we do the work of reading our Bibles. In other words, I just said, this isn't just a prediction about Judas or something that Judas will do. It wasn't like you just, there's this passage that said, one day, there's going to be a man named Judas, and he's going to betray Jesus. It doesn't say that. Not even close. Instead, this is a prophecy that's filled up, not ultimately in Judas, but in Jesus and in his accomplishment of our redemption. It comes back to that. How, How empty is the moralizing? when we can come to the gospel every single time. Before we come to see how this is and in which part of scripture Peter's talking about, Luke, uh, Luke uh, interrupts. And he's entitled to do that because he's writing the book. So he says this. Peter, Peter just talked about Judas and we've got to get another one. Now Luke says, let me explain something. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines spilled out. Or maybe the better word is gushed out, as it does say in in the Legacy Standard Bible. His intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field that field was called Hakodamach, that is, field of blood. And how do we react? 
to that. And I have often kind of read, read that and thought, well, is that really necessary? <laughs> you know, why does it have to be so graphic? Matthew tells us that after throwing the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, Judas departed and he went away and hanged himself. Now we learn from Luke that no one ever took Judas's body down after he hung himself. It, was, it just hung there. And so his body was never given a proper burial. Instead, he was left hanging until, as happens, your body bloats. It becomes extremely distended. His decaying body fell to the ground. When that happened, the built-up pressure that was there, his body burst open in the middle, naturally, and all his intestines spilled out. Matthew tells us that the field where Judas died became known as the field of blood because chief priests purchased it with blood money, the, blood, the, the money that was used for Jesus' blood. But Luke, he, he tells us something else. It was called the field of blood also. It had a double, double reason. Also because the blood of Judas. Not, it's not just about the blood of Jesus. It was blood money. But because, as it turned out, the blood of Judas was spilled and soaked up by the ground of that field. Now, why are we even doing this? Why is this necessary? Why is Luke so graphic? And the answer is very simple. Luke sees in the terrible fate of Judas, the terrible judgment of God. Now, I say it's a terrible judgment, not because God is terrible in that bad way, but because God's judgments are terrible. What happened to the body of Judas after his death was a sign in your handout of the eternal torment that awaited him. The one of whom Jesus said that it would have been good for him if he had not been born. So Matthew says that the field in which Judas hung himself was purchased by the chief priests. And here's, you see, Matthew and Luke, they're both, they're looking at this from different perspectives. Luke has a specific agenda. So Matthew says the chief priests bought it. Luke highlights the divine irony of this situation by pointing out that it's ultimately Judas who bought the field with his money. He's the one that threw it into the temple. The chief priest can't use blood money for the temple work, so they buy this field. I don't know the relationship, if, if what this field, how it might have been related to Judas, but as it turns out, ironically, after having purchased this field, Judas having purchased this field, he hangs himself in this same field. He acquires the field with the price of his own, of his unrighteousness, as a place for his own blood to be spilled. We have themes here of the Psalms, where the Psalms talks about God turning the wickedness of the wicked back upon their own heads. And that's what we see here. God turns the sin of Judas back upon his own head. What I'm, what, what, what I'm inviting us to see, or what Luke is inviting us to see, is the terrors of God's judgment. I 
I fear that maybe at times here as well, in our own minds as Christians, we can whitewash the terrors of God's judgments. And we do that to our detriment. Notice how Luke emphasizes Judas's unrighteousness. The price of his unrighteousness. Judas never, uh, he experienced remorse and self-condemnation, but he never truly repented of his unrighteousness. And we know that because repentance leads to life. If he had repented with the repentance that leads to life, he would not have gone and hung himself. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who commits suicide is, is not saved. I'm saying that he committed suicide because of that specific heinous sin he had committed and the guilt he felt for it. If he had repented of that sin, he would have found forgiveness. While Judas experienced remorse and self-condemnation, he never repented. His sorrow was the sorrow of the world, as Paul says, that brings about death. So he died in his unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, that is the one place we do not want to die in. To die left still in our sin. And what was the sin of Judas? Well, Judas had walked with Jesus. He had listened to Jesus teach. He had eaten bread with Jesus. He had pretended to be a true follower of Jesus for about three years. He had convinced himself, probably. Probably even convinced himself, at least for a short time. He definitely convinced everyone around him, even all the other disciples, that he was a true follower of Jesus Christ. Eventually, he came to realize, probably sooner than later, that Jesus was not the Messiah he wanted. And let's, let's just be clear. He came to hate Jesus. He came to despise Jesus. He began stealing from the money box that was intended for the support of the disciples. So we see this picture that Judas loved money and he hated Jesus. And in the end, there's a lesson there. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so in the end, Judas found a way to satisfy both his love for money and his hate for Jesus by becoming a paid guide to those who arrested Jesus. So this one who had eaten Jesus' bread and been one of his closest companions becomes his betrayer. He betrayed Israel's Messiah, the one that God himself sent into the world. Okay, So here's the one that came from heaven, God sent from heaven into this world, and Judas has become his betrayer. At the end, Judas expressed his remorse. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew he had done wrong, but he still felt no love for Jesus. And this is, a, this is a, a warning to us that though we can be convicted and feel guilt over our sin, if it does not lead us to Jesus and a love for him and his saving work on the cross, it is not true repentance. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But it did not lead him to Jesus. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he refused to believe in Jesus. So he died in his sin. More than that, he died, as Luke makes very clear, and Luke is at pains to make this clear, 
He died under the righteous and terrible judgments of God. And we see that in the manner of what happened to his body after his death. I just want to ask us, were we capable of the same sin Judas committed? Yet we were. And if we don't think we were, we don't know ourselves or understand ourselves outside of Christ. And apart from sovereign grace. So now we come back to our original question. How is the scripture which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning who? Concerning Judas. How is it filled up in who? In Jesus. And what scripture is Peter even talking about? So Luke returns now to Peter in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. We're going to sing those words after the service. It's important for us to, to learn now how to sing them. And let another man take his office. So first Peter quotes from Psalm 69. And it's important for us to see the larger context of this chapter or we're not going to get it. So let's read in Psalm 69. David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. For your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. Those who dwell at the gate moan about me, and I am the drunkard songs. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I hoped for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. So, first thing, it's really clear. David is not thinking here about the enemies of someone else. He's not thinking about the enemies of his future greater son, Jesus. He's completely thinking about his own enemies right now. So this isn't a prediction, is it? Maybe as a church we've learned this now. There's no, there's no prediction here. In in the typical sense. He's not thinking about one specific man. Such as Judas. But he he says his enemies are more than the hairs of his head. His own mother and his own brothers and mother's sons have abandoned him. Those who mock him, he can find him everywhere. From the city gate to the drunkard's lair. They're everywhere. His heart is broken and sick. He's weary with calling out. His throat is parched. His eyes fail while he waits for God. So he's in pretty deep personal distress. I mean, I don't know how we can read that with, with any openness of heart and not have at least sympathy. He's in personal distress, but we remember that David prays not just as an individual. Why does everyone hate David? Well, because he's seeking to live righteously uh, and because he's the king. He is the anointed anointed representative of all God's covenant people. David can't escape that. That's, That's who he is. He's anointed. So David prays as the covenant head, in your handout, of God's covenant people. That's 
That's what gives meaning to the words he prays in verses 6 to 7. Listen to these verses now in light of that. May those who hope for you. So now David's not praying for himself only. He's praying for all who hope in God. May they not be ashamed through me, O Lord. Because if, if David is put to shame by his enemies, all everyone else who hopes in God and Israel is going to be put to shame. May they not be put to shame through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me. I'm their representative. I'm their covenant head. I'm the, I'm the king, O God of Israel. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. Please take my dishonor away, right? Not just for my sake, but for all of the people in Israel. David is constantly aware of what his own defeat at the hands of the wicked is going to mean for the righteous remnant among his people. So his prayer is motivated not just by his own personal distress, like I'm distressed, but, but by the distress he feels for all who are hoping in God. And that's what explains the conclusion to David's prayer. He comes to the end, and being confident that God will deliver him according to his promise in Psalm chapter 2, he says, the humble see it. And are glad. What do they see? They see my deliverance. And what do they see in my deliverance if I'm King David? They see their own deliverance. You who seek God, now he turns to all of them. You who seek God, let your heart revive. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion. What? He saves me? He saves Zion? Yes, because... His salvation of the anointed king is the salvation of Zion and of all the people that live in it. He will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it, the seed of his slaves. Look at the concern of the king for all of God's people that they will inherit and those who love his name will dwell in it. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're seeing this. Okay, because this is what's going to bring it all to light for us in Acts. God's judgment poured out on David's enemies equals God's salvation. Not just for David, but for all the righteous that David represents. Now, it's only when we get that that we can understand the curses that David invokes on his enemies, and some people don't get it. C.S. Lewis didn't get it for all the nice things and, and really profound things he wrote. He missed some really obvious things. One of them was his, his utter disdain for David's praying with words like these, which means that you must disdain the apostles and Jesus himself who prayed words like these. So this is something that if we can get, we're going to have some, a lot of the scriptures opened up to us. So it's only in this light, then, that we see David is not being vindictive, as everyone accuses him, not everyone, but some people. He's not being vengeful, he's not being hateful. He's not having a personal vendetta. This is not a personal vendetta. It is about David's longing for God's justice in the destruction of the reprobate, which I hope we want destroyed. No, I would rather the, rep- I would rather the wicked repent. But if they're reprobate, we need them to be destroyed. Not to gloat in their pain, but to glory in the world washed clean of wickedness, in a place of righteousness. And we don't ignore that reality. 
God is a God of judgment who leaves Judas's body to rot and fall to the ground as a sign of his judgment poured out upon him. These are realities. And it is in these realities that we see and find our salvation. Ultimate. Our ultimate salvation. Not just our salvation from sin, but our ultimate salvation in a world in which only righteousness dwells. So David prays. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so that they cannot see and make their loins quake continually. These are all words we're going to sing. These exact words we will sing together after the message. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. And here's the words we recognize from Peter. Peter's reading these words. He says, oh, it's fulfilled. It's this, this is a foretelling of Judas. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have struck down. And they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. So he's including others besides just himself. Add iniquity to their iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, would, would, David, would David grieve if they repented? No. But as long as they don't repent, he will rejoice when they are destroyed. He will rejoice not in their pain, but in the salvation of the righteous. So those, let's put it together. Those who betrayed and persecuted David find their fulfillment in Judas, who betrayed and persecuted David's greater son, Jesus. If David was the covenant head of God's people under the old covenant, Jesus is our covenant head in the covenant of grace. When I say covenant of grace, I I mean the new covenant under its promissory form in the Old Testament and its inaugurated New Testament form. Covenant of grace is a way of referring to the new covenant as it spreads out over the whole, um, whole Bible. If the defeat of David at the hands of the wicked would have meant the temporal defeat of the righteous remnant in Israel, so you defeat David and, boy, a lot of other people are going down with him, what happens if Jesus is defeated? We all go down to eternal damnation. So what do both Peter and Luke, both Peter and Luke, you know they're both thinking, right? Luke knew what Peter was thinking. Luke just spells it out a little bit with his comment. What do they both see in the judgment of God poured out on Judas? What do they see when they see that? Not just something graphic and grisly and, oh. No, they see in that judgment the vindication of Jesus. And not just the vindication of Jesus. They see in that judgment, they look at that, what do they see? The salvation of all God's people. That's what they see. The judgment of those who betrayed and persecuted David, therefore, finds a fulfillment in the judgment of him who betrayed and persecuted Jesus. 
And this judgment of Judas, the the son of destruction, Jesus says, is in turn a sign of our salvation. The second psalm Peter quotes from is Psalm 109, which opens with these words. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened a wicked mouth and a deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken to me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I am in prayer. Thus they have set upon me evil for good and hatred for my love. So once again, common theme, who are the people persecuting David? They're his own mother's sons and brothers. They're those who were closest to him. They're the ones he loved. And so their hatred for him is a terrible betrayal. We see that in in Judas. And once again, David sees in his own suffering as king the suffering of all who are afflicted and needy among the people he represents. Look at what he writes. This, This wicked man did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted... Now he says, not, not just me, he says he persecuted the afflicted, the needy man. Look who David is concerned for. He's concerned for his people. He's concerned for those getting mowed down by the wicked. They persecuted the disheartened to put them to death. David is looking beyond himself. Truly shame, shame on the Christians today who suggest that David was praying a fleshly, carnal prayer and condemn him for praying it. David looks confidently ahead to his salvation. And he says, with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly. Now, I say that. I want to be careful. I I get, sometimes I, I could be taken... We could say, well, that's, I, I, I could understand how they feel that way. Look what David wrote. Well, my trouble is that it's, it's written in inspired scripture. And, and, David, and there's no sign that David is being condemned and judged for it. So usually, usually what goes along with a condemnation of David for praying prayers like that is a low view of scripture. And and if and it and, and you know we're like well it's it's wrong I'm not going to start with the presupposition it's scripture and try to understand it rightly. Instead, I assume scripture is not necessarily inspired, and so well, there's a problem there. So it's how we approach scripture that makes the difference. That's why it's shameful when people just go and assume that that's vindictive and vengeful. So Peter says at the end, with my mouth, (laughs) David says, with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to Yahweh. And in the midst of many, look, (laughs) see it's not just about him, in the midst of many I will praise him. And why why is everyone else praising God with him? Because they're all delivered too. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. So we see once again, skipping ahead, the blank is with, which you can figure out I'm sure, but... We see once again that God's judgment poured out on David's enemies equals God's salvation. Not just for David, but for all. The curses David invokes on his enemies, therefore, are not vindictive, not vengeful, not hateful, no personal vendetta. Instead, he is 
invoking God's curse on the enemy because he knows that is necessary to the salvation of God's people. The people who are fighting against David and persecuting him, I mean, he's the king. So these people who are fighting against him must have been in high places. That they had positions of influence, of power in the land. And so when, when David says that he did not remember to show loving kindness, his, impre- his implication is that they, had a, they were in a position to show loving kindness, to defend the needy, to defend the righteous. And instead, they were using their positions of, of power, which is a very different thing from a lot of the rhetoric that we hear today. They were actually using their positions of power to persecute righteous people. Righteous people. Instead of delighting in blessing, which they should have as, as judges in the land, they loved cursing. Instead of showing loving kindness, they clothed themselves with cursing. We ought, we ought to pray for the destruction of the reprobate and leave it to God who the reprobate are. So David prays, appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth a wicked man. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. And here, this is a little phrase Peter reaches back and takes. And Peter, none of the New Testament writers ever cherry-pick a phrase out without context. So here he says, let another take his office. Peter knew the whole psalm. Let his sons be orphans and his wife a widow. The assumption is that he made others widows and others orphans. Let his sons wander aimlessly and beg. Let them search for food from their ruined homes. The assumption here is like father, like son. The sons partake in the character of their father. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder the fruit of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, and let there be none to be gracious to his orphan. Let those who follow him who come after him, be cut off in a following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. So there's, again, intergenerational wickedness. Let them be before Yahweh continually, those sins of his parents, of his own, and of his sons, that he may cut off their memory from the earth. Once again, we see with Peter how the judgment of those who hated and betrayed David is in your handout what? You can use fulfilled or you can say filled up in the judgment of Judas who hated and betrayed Jesus. We also see how the vindication of David when his enemies were destroyed and the salvation of all the afflicted that David was appointed to protect and to defend as their king is fulfilled in the vindication of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the salvation of all of us whom Jesus now keeps and protects and defends. Therefore, when we see in the terrifying, what we see in the terrifying judgment of God poured out on Judas is nothing less than our own eternal salvation in Jesus, our covenantal head. Now, here's one last thing before we conclude with the the closing section. 
David assumes that this office that's been left vacant, you know, because remember these guys that were persecuting him and oppressing the needy and afflicted, they were all in high positions in the land. When those positions are left vacant because God has judged them, the positions are going to need to be filled. That's why David says, let another take his office. Now, at that point, his, his focus is on, please dispose of these people. His focus is not on, oh, I can't wait for the other nice person to get in there who's going to show loving kindness. But nevertheless, when it gets around to filling that office with someone who does show loving kindness, that's just going to be another sign to David of God's salvation. Look what God has done. He took him out and he put him in. It will be an occasion for praising Yahweh in the midst of those who share with David in Yahweh's salvation. Are you putting it together now? Are you ahead of me? Right? So also the filling of the office vacated by Judas is to us a sign of the triumph. The triumph of God's Salvation. A salvation that comes, not simply, although first and foremost, through his death on the cross, and therefore his delivering us from our sin, from the guilt of sin, and from from death, but a salvation that includes, both in some senses now at times, but ultimately on the final day, a deliverance from all wickedness around us, a purging of the world of all the reprobate through the terrifying, terrible judgments of God and a world of righteousness in which only the believers in Jesus Christ live. Maybe now then we can hear this note of triumph in Peter's words. Listen for the triumph. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must, must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, which means... He knew the heart of Judas. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. And the next verse is chapter 2. Verse 1, the day of Pentecost. And what could at first appear to us to be somewhat random, and I'm always excited to come and get to prepare every week and be like, oh, wow. This this could appear to us to be somewhat random, a somewhat unimportant moment. It's like, well, we got 10 days. What else do we have to do? No, that's that's not what's going on here. We see the triumph of God's salvation. That's what we see. Deliverance not just from sin and death, but from the world that hates Jesus and persecutes those who follow him. 
in the judgment of Judas and the choice of his replacement, we are assured of the ultimate fate that awaits all who persecute God's people. Sometimes it's like, well, maybe I'd rather be on the other side. They seem to have it better. They're not so, they don't have people persecuting them, right? No, it's never better to be on the other side. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, It is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest to you. It is right, he says, to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation. Sometimes he does this in the present life, but ultimately it awaits the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the writer of Hebrews says, truly, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not only then are we assured of the ultimate fate that awaits all who persecute God's people, but we are also warned, brothers and sisters, and if I call you, if you're a brother or you're a sister, you have done this. We are warned to flee to Christ ourselves. So we don't just come to Christ because, oh, He's lovely, he's wonderful, he's done this wonderful thing. No, we flee to him because we sense the urgency of there is wrath pursuing me. There are eternal judgments chasing me. And I am fully deserving of those. So I flee to Christ. I flee to him, fleeing from those things. Not only do we flee, but we call others to flee to Christ. So we, can call, we can talk about the reprobate. But we don't have a list of the reprobate. So while we pray for the destruction of the reprobate, we also pray for the repentance of the wicked in light of the terrors of God's righteous judgments. It is not a, this is not something I love to, I mean, if you, if you ever get someone's like, man, they just love preaching about judgments. I don't think that's healthy. But at the same time, I, I, I've been convicted this week to reflect on these judgments. Seeing Pete Luke's description of, of the sign of Judas's judgment, that was sobering. We all should be sobered. The fate of Judas ultimately stands as a warning to all of us. And yet at the same time, in the judgment of Judas and the choice of his replacement, we are also assured of that ultimate salvation that awaits all of us who have believed and who will therefore, as Paul says, be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So, after Paul says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, then he continues on in the same breath, when he comes to be glorified in his saints, on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have, what? What? Just believed. 
And so in another place, Paul writes, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I was really excited about this last part, and I hope you will see the beauty of it when we read it. These are just beautiful verses, but then in this context, they, they're just amazing. These are the last words of David. So listen to these words carefully in this light. Not only in the light of his role as a prophet, by whom the Holy Spirit spoke, which we've just seen this morning, but also listen to these words in the light of his role as one who was himself a prophetic type, which we've also seen this morning. He was a covenant head, pointing us to Jesus, our covenant head. In that light, listen to these words. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. These are the last words of David. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, from the brightness of the sun after rain, with the tender grass springing from the earth. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the vile men, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they will be, and they will be completely burned with fire where they sit. So brothers and sisters, rejoice to know this morning we have been rescued from this burning fire. It's a burning fire. This is the real, this is what we've been rescued from. We have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to conclude, as Paul does, therefore, let us not sleep Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for the salvation that has been accomplished. We praise you for the beauty of your word that we see now in Acts chapter 1 and this, this graphic description of the fate of Judas and what happened to his body after his death that we see even in the terrors of your judgments the promise of our salvation. And we are humbled and we are sobered to realize that we had the same sin nature Judas had. Father, we pray that, Lord, you 
and your mercy and grace continue to keep us as you have promised you will. And Lord, we do pray. On the one hand, we pray for the repentance of all the wicked. We, we, would, we desire that the wicked repent and turn from their evil ways. On the other hand, we long for the day when all of the reprobate are destroyed from the earth and only righteousness dwells around us and in us. And we live under the rule of that king who fears the Lord, whose rule and reign is like, is like the sun rising, but not a cloud in the sky. fresh rain-washed air and all is new and good and as it should be. Lord, I pray that if there was any here who have not yet taken seriously your righteous judgments against sin, that we would so this morning and that we would flee from those to your provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that those of us, for those who have fled, we have not been appointed, we know, to wrath, but to salvation now and one day in the future when Jesus returns to repay with affliction those who have afflicted your people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. We have inherited this salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, let us then, this week and every week and for the rest of our lives until you come or you call us home, let us be sober, not in a glum sort of way, but in a passionate and fervent and earnest sort of way, to put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, always the hope of salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.